All right, Acts chapter 23 is where we're going to be. I always leave my guitar pick in my guitar, and I'm 40 now, so I'm going to set this down somewhere. I'm going to forget where it is. So when I start worship at the end of service for communion, you guys are all going to have to remind me I left it right here on the ground, okay? Because I'm going to do this, and somebody's going to have to yell out, welcome to being 40. Acts 23. Where we're going to be, we are going to finish the chapter today. We started the chapter last week. Uh, Stephen brought us through the first half. It's page 543. If you have one of our white or blue Bibles, like I got up here, 543 is where we're going to be. And we refilled that bin of Bibles. So if you need one, grab one. Um, Coming up, it's a little bit earlier this year than normal, church in the park for us. Uh, we're downtown, clearly, if you recognize. So Bloomsday and Hoop Fest, we cannot get here. Okay, so Bloomsday this year, is it's always the first Sunday. The first Sunday happens to fall on the 1st of May. So that means Saturday night, so April 29th, Saturday night before Bloomsday Sunday, we're going to have church where we usually have it, Manitou Park. Uh, North Shelter, so kind of the main area, big shelter there, uh, and that'll be 6 o'clock Saturday night, okay? So Church in the Park, that's the first one, and then we're going to do something a little bit different this year. Um, we're going to go all of June, uh, so it's going to end up being, um, is it Memorial Day or Labor Day in the spring? Memorial, Memorial Day through Fourth of July weekend, we're going to do Church in the Park every week. It's like six weeks in a row. So you have that to look forward to. I'll announce that as we get closer. And then obviously Easter Sunday. Uh, we have a little bit different philosophy of ministry on Easter Sunday. We don't do uh, anything crazy huge. Sometimes we have kids programs and things like that, but uh, we don't do like an extra big show or anything like that for Easter. We're kind of like, hey, if you're going to come once a year, like we're just going to show you what we usually do, which is study the word. So we're doing that next week. Uh, it's going to be pretty similar to our normal Sunday, except maybe I'll dress fancier. So, all right, here we go. Acts 23. Um, we're jumping into the middle of the chapter. We're going to start in verse 11. Uh, and in order to understand kind of the pressures that are at work in this story, uh, you need to understand a little bit about human nature. I'll explain what I mean. Let's start here, though. I got three kids, and uh, they're all about to have birthdays, so they're going to be 13, 4, and 2 uh, here in a month or so, a couple months, actually. And I remember... Um, when I was a kid, my dad yelling at me all the time, stop fighting with your brother, stop fighting with your sister. I remember distinctly that happening all the time, especially back in my day. Uh, again, I'm 40, so like we didn't have iPads or anything, so we just all three sat in the back seat of the car. Anywhere along we went, like to Seattle or something. It was a nightmare. And I, I knew that brothers and sisters fought, but I thought my kids would take longer to fight. I don't know. Like, because in my mind, I'm like, what could a 13-year-old possibly fight with a 4-year-old about? <laughs> right? Like, he's 13. He's, like, into Star Wars and Avengers and skateboarding, and he's, like, a great skier and stuff like that, and she can't wipe her own butt. So, like, why would they argue? There's no reason for them to argue. And yet, constantly yelling, screaming, 
fighting. And, and we have three kids now. So what has happened is our standards of expectations have lowered so far. When you have your first kid, you're like, I want everything to be perfect. And now by your third kid, you're like, if you're not dead and not screaming, that's fine with me. Like, I don't care how that gets accomplished. Like, don't die and don't scream at each other. And like, you just, it gets to the point where you just hear one of the girls screaming and you're like, why is my son doing that? And he, it might not even be his fault, but um, so that's a kind of backhanded apology to my son right now for blaming him for my girls screaming all the time. So here's what it is. I'm just like, sometimes Toby will watch the girls for us, right? We'll have to meet with somebody or we'll go for a run or something like that. And re- the literal, the only thing I tell him is, please don't make them scream. Just please don't make your sister scream. Like whatever you have to do, get, and I don't care iPad, computer, movie, sugar, candy, snacks, zipline, hammocks in the house. I don't care. Just don't have them scream. And that is exactly what is happening here in Acts chapter 23. The Roman government in Paul's day feels the exact same way about the Jews in Jerusalem. Okay? So, um, what has happened is the Roman Empire has occupied Jerusalem for about... 100 years at this point, from about 63 BC, so 60 some odd years-ish before the birth of Jesus. Jesus lived for about 30 years, and then we're about 20 some odd years after the death and resurrection of Jesus at this point in Acts 23. So we're about 100 years now that the Jews have occupied, uh, or the Romans have occupied Jewish territory, including Jerusalem. And what has happened is, The Jews have become known in the Roman Empire as some of the hardest people to deal with. They're so stubborn and so angry all the time, and they riot, and they mob, and they complain, and they beat people to death, and they just do all these crazy things. And the Roman, the Caesar, the Roman government back in Rome is putting people in charge of Jerusalem, and basically their message is, they just don't have them scream. Just get them, keep them from yelling, keep them from rioting, keep them from killing one another or other people. Just please, whatever you do. And so what happened is this post of Roman authority, this Roman political position that was over uh, Israel and Jerusalem in particular, is like a low end of the totem pole. Like, yes, it's a higher position than just a normal military position. It's political and it's like people are moving their way up, but it's kind of like it's a crappy job. Because the Roman, the message you get from the Roman Caesar is just like, keep them quiet. Please just keep them quiet. So we talk about the Roman uh, tribune in this chapter. This is the pressure he's living under, right? He is living under this pressure from Rome. Just keep these people quiet. And like his livelihood, his job, his way of life is all at stake. Because if he fails, he's going to lose his job. And so he's got this pressure of like, just keep these people quiet. So when we read a couple weeks ago that they started to riot and the mob is like beating Paul to death. And then he goes down there and grabs Paul and arrests him out of it. This is not because he's really concerned about Paul. This is not because he's like a humanitarian. He just can't stand violence. He's just thinking about himself 100%. He knows the mandate from on high is keep these people quiet. Rioting is one thing they don't want to happen. So he arrests Paul, but then Paul ends up going, uh, getting arrested, and then they were going to flog him. So they were going to beat him with whips uh, to get the truth out of him, which is like kind of a Roman thing to do, like torture people until they confess, which... I don't know how well that works, right? Like, if I was getting beat with whips, I might confess a lot of stuff if you'd stop. So anyway, they were about to do that, and Paul looks back, and he's like, hey, 
is it lawful for you to arrest a Roman citizen and beat them with whips? And the executioner guy who was about to carry this out goes back to the Roman tribune and is like, uh, what are you doing, man? Like, the laws say that you cannot arrest and let not, definitely not beat or flog a Roman citizen without a trial. And so now this guy's got all this pressure on him, this tribune. He's got this pressure from Rome. Don't let these people riot. Don't let these people kill one another. Just keep them quiet. Just stop yelling at each other. And then he's done this illegal thing by arresting a Roman citizen and about to have him flogged. So if Paul somehow were to make his way back to Rome and tell basically what the tribune had done, this tribune, either way you slice it, this guy's life is over. Right? So he's trying to keep Paul quiet, trying to keep the Jews quiet, and there's a lot of pressure going on. And it's kind of like what my 13-year-old does when something goes wrong, right? If he does actually do something wrong to his little sister, what's the next thing he says? Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. So that's exactly what the Roman Tribune is hoping, that Paul is not going to go back and tell someone above him. So that's what's going on. And in the meantime, Paul is in custody of the Roman soldiers, probably wondering how this is going to turn out. And that's when this happens. We'll start in verse 11. So in custody in Rome, or in custody of the Romans in Jerusalem, and this is what happens to Paul, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, so stood by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul, if you remember, preached the gospel there in Jerusalem. Uh, it didn't go well. They started to beat him to death, right? That led to him being arrested, almost flogged, now in custody. So this is, God stands there next to him and says, take courage, Paul, right? Just like you did in Jerusalem, you're going to end up doing in Rome. And this is where we ended last week. And Stephen did an excellent job of pointing out that God stood next to him in that moment. He didn't just give him an informational speech and Stephen talked about the idea that we tell ourselves that we want answers. We think that if we know more, it'll solve our problems. But God doesn't promise us answers to our questions. God promises to be with us in the moment. Because the truth is, more information never solved anybody's problems. God's presence solved problems. And I do think it's funny when you think about the fact that God told him to take courage. Because if you don't read it thoughtfully, you would think, Okay, God, you told me to take courage, but what about how it went in Jerusalem should give me courage? <laughs> I preached the gospel of Jerusalem. Not only did nobody get saved, they all rioted and tried to beat me to death. And then God's like, take courage. We're going to do this again in Rome. He's like, what about Jerusalem should give me courage for Rome? But the courage doesn't come from the circumstances. The courage comes from the presence of God. Right? God is standing there. Just at the end of this, Paul probably thought there was a complete waste of time, complete failure. He preached the gospel. Everybody got upset. He got beaten. He got arrested. Now he's not a free person. And God's like, but I'm here. And just like I'm here with you in Jerusalem, I'm going to be here with you in Rome. I think it's important to point that out because as humans, we tend to find courage in our circumstances. And we think that if we have favorable circumstances, then we have, we'll have more courage, right? And if we think we have uncertain circumstances, then we will have less courage. And that's not the equation that God is calling Paul to work from right here. It's not the equation that produces the kind of life that God is calling you to. As Christians, we need to recognize our courage comes from the presence of God, 
not the condition of our circumstances. And God says, take courage, Paul, because just like I'm here with you in Jerusalem, I'm going to be here with you in Rome, even if it goes badly in Jerusalem or in Rome like it did in Jerusalem. So continuing on, look at verse 12. And when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul, verse 13. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said to him, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So just to be clear, Paul says, or God says, Take courage, Paul. And then the next morning, the Jews come up with a plan to murder Paul. So the next morning, God says, Take courage. And the next morning, it gets worse. You see that? Take courage. Worse. Take courage. Worse. Like that's like the morning after God stands with Paul in custody, Paul finds out there's a plot from a significant group of people to murder him. That doesn't seem like good news. It's not good news. So what do you do when you feel like God leads you into a situation and things get worse? What do you do in that moment? Did God leave you? Is that what happened? Do things only get worse because God's mad at you? Uh, I was reading quotes about this this week, and Corrie Ten Boom has this great quote. If you don't know Corrie Ten Boom, she was a Christian Dutch watchmaker uh, with her father and sister in the Netherlands during World War II, and the Nazi party uh, took over the Netherlands. Corrie Ten Boom's family was hiding uh, Jews and resistance workers in their house, and uh, they got ratted out, and the Nazis came and arrested them. Uh, all the people they were hiding actually made it to safety, but Corrie Ten Boom, her dad, and her sister all got arrested and then ended up in concentration camps. Her dad died in custody and her sister died in custody. And she, only two weeks after her sister passed away, was let out of the concentration camp. Uh, she was in there for almost a year, but they told her afterwards the only reason he got let out was a clerical error. And she has this incredible quote. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Going through a tunnel does not mean the engineer isn't controlling the train any longer. Darkness is not a reason to assume we need to jump off the train. And can I tell you that bad news is not necessarily a sign that God has abandoned you. Difficulty is not necessarily a sign that God left you. God knew you would be reading this Bible, this verse, this morning, when those circumstances that happened to you last week happened. Or those circumstances that are happening to you in this coming week were going to happen. Right? God knows what he's doing. And so when he promises things like this, like I will never leave you or forsake you or take courage, I'm going to be with you. This is, these are not new things to him. We go into circumstances and we're like, oh, well, I know God felt very close to me on Sunday when I was reading the word, but then I, I had this bad thing happen to me and it's really uncomfortable, so he must have left me. And that's just not in your Bible. God knows the trials you're going to walk through 
And he leads you this morning to read a story about him being with a man whose situation just got worse after he promised that he would be with him. And here's the thing. Not only is it worse than it was 24 hours ago, this is something Paul has done several times now. Okay? Now, if you're Paul, you're thinking, God, we've done this prison thing before. Any, anybody else impatient in here? Just me. Okay. Oh, one of us. Okay. So when, when something happens to you, you're like, oh, that happened. That sucks, especially if it's negative. But if it's happened before, there's like an extra layer of annoyance and impatience, right? Right? Like, God, we've done this before. I've tried to do this before. We feel like we're going in circles. We've been here before. And Paul is probably thinking that same thing. God, we've done the prison thing before. You've let me out of prison before. We have already done the plot to murder me thing. We've already had religious people ganging up trying to execute me. Like, why do we have to circle back around to this thing? I remember from my time in Bible college, uh, there's two different pretty well-known stories in life of Jesus where Jesus is teaching people, and while he's teaching them, uh, like out in the countryside, they run out of food. And in both stories, Jesus miraculously provides food to feed the crowds. Right? And so, you know, you, you, you read the first story, and then the second story is a little bit later in the gospel accounts. And you're reading it, and, and the, gospel, the um, apostles, the disciples of Jesus, they're like freaking out again. They're like, we ran out of food. And I'm like, you idiots. Like, we already knew this was going to happen, right? We read the other story. Like, you watched him happen. Like, you watched him provide food. Like, why is this? You've done this before. Why is it a big deal? Why can't you just trust God? I wouldn't have said that out loud because I realize now saying it out loud how mean it sounds. But it was just kind of like one of those things. You're like, come on, guys. You've done this before. Like, why is this such a big deal? And um, I got out of Bible college, and I got married, and we didn't make much money. And one month in particular, we had some unexpected expenses come up and I was looking at the bank account and I was like, we don't have money to cover rent. I was like, uh, this is not good. And, uh, we prayed about it and like waited on God and like him and his faithfulness, he provided some extra money. I was working like four jobs, right? So I got some extra money and we got to pay rent that month. And I was like, yes. I was like, thank you, God. You're so good. Right? And from that moment on, I never distrusted God with money again. I just, I walked by faith for the rest of my life. I just learned my lesson. Nobody got that as a joke. No! It was like one month later, right? One month later, more bills come up. I'm looking at the thing. I was like, now we can pay rent, but we can't afford food. And I'm like, ah. And I hear the apostle Peter from the grave saying, you idiot, you just did this last month when you didn't have money, right? How can you not trust God again, right? There's this thing that happens when we circle back around, right? And God proves himself faithful over and over and over again when we are faithless, Right? And so we actually showed up. Um, we were at Bible study. We came home that month, and there was like $500 worth of groceries just sitting on our porch. Somebody had blessed us with. And we had a whole Home Depot bucket full of rice. Lasted us like nine months. Right? It was incredible. It was awesome. But God's so good. And sometimes we get annoyed because we're circling back around with the same issue, the same problem, similar circumstances. I've felt this way before. I've gone down this road before. And yet, 
If you feel that way in your heart, if you're a little extra discouraged because you're like, oh, I've done this before already. I don't want to do this again. That's not from the Lord. That's from Satan, right? You can read in your Bible. If you're thinking, I got to do this again, that voice in your back of your head, tell it to shut up. Because the Apostle Paul is doing this again, so you're in good company, right? Like, hey, this is biblical. We're fine. Now, here's where some miraculous stuff starts to take place. Paul is in Roman custody. Apparently, he's not bound and arrested like he was, but he's also not free to go. So I'm not exactly sure of the circumstances. But remember that pressure that we talked about a few minutes ago at the beginning of the message? Well, one of those pressures is that the Roman tribune will get in big trouble if Paul were somehow to get news to the Roman authorities that this tribune in Jerusalem is arresting Roman citizens without a trial and arranging to have them flogged uh, for no reason. So Paul has some leverage here. Even though maybe he doesn't realize it, he has some leverage. Even though he's in prison, there's a pressure on the tribune to accommodate Paul in a way that he probably wouldn't have accommodated Paul because... He's doing this, like, don't tell mom thing, right? He's like, oh, man, I'm going to be a little extra nice to Paul so he doesn't rat me out. So, like I said, here's where we start to see some little miracles take place. Paul's nephew hears about this plan to murder Paul, so he comes to tell Paul about it, which seems amazing, right? Because I'm not super familiar with first century, like, Roman prison etiquette, but it doesn't seem like you could just walk in and visit the prisoners, Right? It doesn't seem like, like random citizens could just walk in. Maybe they could. So the nephew walks in. He's like, hey, Paul, I just heard about this whole thing that's happening. And Paul grabs a soldier. He's like, hey, you, take this boy to the tribune. You think the tribune spends a lot of time listening to complaints from every prisoner in his custody? No, that's ridiculous, right? Every prisoner is like, I didn't do it. Let me talk to the governor. Yeah, sure you did, buddy. Like, there's no way. Like, this is a miracle. Like, the tribune has no reason to listen to Paul. And yet, he's doing this, oh, don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. So there's little weird pressure on him. So he's probably like, oh, okay, what's Paul have to say? I want to be a nice guy so he doesn't get me in trouble. I, I just, I, like... Can you imagine you get arrested for something like, I want to talk to the governor. The guard's like, shut your pie hole, right? There's no way. He's like, oh, you have a message for him? Let me write it down. Oh, you want me to take this boy? And yet he does it. And then look at what happens in verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Verse 19. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what do you have to tell me? Again, there is no possible way that the highest-ranking Roman official politically in Jerusalem is taking this sort of time with every prisoner. This is absolutely Paul getting special treatment. Why? Well, I'm sure that the leverage Paul has plays at least a part in what's happening. This guy is worried about Paul telling the Roman authorities. So the tribune listens to the boy, verse 20, and he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of them are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely 
to Felix the governor. So if you add all of this up, uh, the men here that are assigned to Paul to get him out of Jerusalem and to Caesarea, there's about 200 Roman soldiers plus 70 horsemen, right? 270 trained Roman soldiers to escort one guy from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is like 50 miles. That's a lot of guys for one prisoner, right? A little bit of overkill. Again, Paul getting extra special treatment. Verse 25. And then on top of that, the tribune wrote a letter to this effect. Verse 26. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their own law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when he was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to also state before you what they have against him. So now we have more special treatment of Paul. The tribune writes a letter to his boss, the governor there, and there's two very funny things in the letter. First, the tribune makes himself out to be the hero which is kind of funny, right? He's like, oh, I was just minding my own business and this man was being beaten, so I saved him. And then I learned he was a Roman citizen, so I sent him to you at once so that I would preserve his life. It's like, no, that's not actually how it happened, right? You arrested him, then you were about to have him beaten and tortured so that he confessed, and then he was like, you're allowed to do this to Roman citizens? And you're like, oh, crap, so now you're being the nice guy. That's what actually happened, right? So the second thing that's funny is because this man now, like, because he's so trying to please Paul so that he doesn't get in, in trouble, this pressure that's on him, he, he writes this thing that says, I actually have found nothing against this man. I don't think he's guilty at all. Now, you don't think that plays a part in how this governor Felix treats Paul? Paul's actually going to be in Caesarea for the next two years. Right? And there's that saying about first impressions and you ever get a second chance. If you get a letter like this, like a man comes to you and there's a letter from a, a, a person you trust and says like, actually, I think this is a good guy and I don't think he did anything wrong. You're going to trust that guy way more than if he's just some random prisoner who got transferred to your custody. And, and what ends up happening is Paul ends up staying with Felix the governor and he's not free to go, but it's basically like a hotel on the Roman government's dime for two years. Like he could preach the gospel, he could read and write, he ends up writing books in the New Testament, all sorts of stuff. Like people end up getting saved in part because this pressure that's put on the tribune right now causes him to write a letter which makes Paul's stay so much easier. You know when people are overly nice to you? in front of other people, and you start thinking, man, you're not really like this. Like, what's that? What are you trying to, what, what's your angle here? Right? That's what's happening, right? The, the tribune is like, oh, I actually never found anything wrong with this man. I was just his hero and rescued him. It seems like a nice guy to me, right? That's what's happening here. And Paul's probably, you know, rolling his eyes. I don't think he got to read the letter, but, you know, 
So verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. So the 200 foot soldiers went about half the way. Uh, Caesarea, as you could tell by the name, was a Roman colony, right? So not a Jewish town. So about halfway from Jerusalem uh, to Caesarea, it ends up being more uh, Romans than Jews. So they were kind of out of uh, harm's way there. So the foot soldiers, the 200 foot soldiers went back. The 70 horsemen kept going. Verse 32. And on the next day, they were up. Verse 33, sorry. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded them to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So here's what just happened. God is using this political pressure and this Roman tribune's selfish nature and deceptive heart to take care of Paul through this time of real trial, real difficulty. And at the time, Paul, Paul was probably really upset that he got arrested and almost got flogged and was in Roman custody. Paul was probably really annoyed by all of this, but now those things, his unjust arrest and his unjust almost flogging are actually working on his behalf. Like he probably doesn't get 270 trained Roman soldier escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea unless this tribune feels an extra pressure. Right? He probably doesn't get the listening to his nephew and the plot that was against him uh, and then the action on behalf because he really doesn't want Paul to get attacked so that he doesn't tell on him. He probably doesn't get this nice letter written about him when he gets to Felix the governor unless this pressure. So at the time that all this is happening, Paul's like, this is awful. And it actually ends up working out for his good. Paul's going to be in Caesarea for, like I said, two more years, and technically he's awaiting trial, but he's enjoying the fruits of an ease of life and a comfort and a protection from God that was actually initiated by things he didn't really enjoy at the time. This is just another example of God taking something that you thought was the worst possible thing, taking something you thought was terrible news, taking something you thought would be a step back and using it not only for your good, but his glory buildings. He does it all the time. I was studying for this message this week, and I was like, man, like, God can take things that we think, like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Oh, this is so the wrong direction. Oh, this is not where I wanted to go, and use it, and you look back, and you're like, man, that actually is such a blessing, and so I was thinking about this all week, and then my wife and I went to the mall. She was getting a new pair of shoes, and uh, we were hanging out with the family, and we got some donuts and stuff, and then we walked the stroller back to the car, and I parked the stroller behind the car, I got the girls in the car, and then I got in the car to leave, and there was nobody right in front of me. You know when you park, and the spots go like this, and if there's no one in front of you, you could just pull straight forward, right? Well, I do that thing like some other men do that really annoy their wives, is I park far away from all the other cars so I don't get door dinged. She's like, why? So we're parked far away. There's nobody in the parking lot. I mean, there's 20 spaces on either side of me. There's no cars, Right? I have free reign to just pull out and leave. And this one car comes in the parking lot and parks right in front of me. I just started my car. I'm like ready to go. And I'm like, oh, where's this guy going? And he parks right in front of me. I was like, are you kidding me? There's nobody anywhere around. And now 
it can't pull forward. So then I like, had to shove it into reverse. And the funny thing about it is I watched the people get out, and it was a pastor from another church in town that I know. So I was like, ah! and then he gets out, and I was like, ah. I was like, so I'm still mad at you, but I can't believe you parked. So I shove it into reverse, and what do I see in the backup camera? I left the stroller right behind the car, and it's got our purses and our coats and our blankets and all the stuff in it. Right? So this thing that I was so annoyed that there's like, there's nowhere to park and you park right in front of me. I could have just left. Right? If he never would have parked in front of me, I never would have hit reverse. I never would have looked in the backup camera and we would have just drove off and left a lot of really important stuff in the parking lot in the Valley Mall. And I, I don't know, we didn't use the stroller for the last two days. I still probably wouldn't know I was missing my stroller. You know how that happens? You know, like next Wednesday, you're like, where'd we put the stroller? Right? <laughs> So praise God, like even just in a small way, right? This inconvenience actually was a huge blessing to me. And I was like, ah, oh, Lord, I was like, you're so good, so thankful. I was just so annoyed at Pastor Richie parking in front of me. And now I'm thankful for it. The Bible tells us there's only two reasons God doesn't give us what we want. It's either because it's a stupid thing we want or... Because getting what we want would be for stupid reasons. Like, we want it for dumb reasons, right? And so when you're like, oh, man, I can't believe this happened to me. Like, you want comfort for a dumb reason. Or you actually getting comfort would be terrible for you. And that's why God would not give it to you. And actually, there's a third reason God doesn't give it what you want. It's not right now, right? But that's not really a no. That's a, hey, just wait a little bit. But we think that when we go into hard circumstances or when things get worse or when we have to circle back around and do this again, we're like, are you kidding me? And yet we see here a clear story of God proving himself faithful and true in a thing that Paul's already done before, in a way that he's already walked through, in a prison cell, having a plot against him, and yet God is proving himself faithful. And here's where I want to end this morning. It's a question. Is God working in the story? Is God doing things in this story? Are there miraculous things happening in this story? Is God moving on behalf of the Apostle Paul in this story? And you're thinking, yeah, Jared, it's in the Bible, so of course God is working in this story. Wait, you mean God could be working and the end of the chapter could still mean that Paul's in prison? Wait, God could be moving and Paul not be set free at the end of the chapter? Are you sure? Because there's a certain vein of Christianity that's like, if everything in your life isn't perfect and comfortable, then God's not working. And yet we see in this story, there's miracle after miracle after miracle that God is working on behalf of Paul. The fact that the tribune listens to his nephew, that's a miracle. The fact that the tribune escorts Paul to, to Caesarea with way more guys than are necessary, that's a miracle. That Paul gets to ride a horse, that's a miracle. Right? The fact that the tribune writes a letter on Paul's behalf and says, you know what, I never really found anything wrong with this guy anyway. That's a miracle. And yet, God can still be working miracles and working on behalf of Paul, and Paul could still be in prison at the end of the day. I think we have examples here of God working in miraculous ways. And even though those miracles aren't the miracles Paul was probably hoping for, 
He probably just wanted to be free. They are still expressions to us of the goodness and faithfulness of our God. Miracles of God don't have to meet our standards to qualify as miracles. You know that, right? If you have this big thing that you want, and God gives you a little thing, it's okay. I mean, that was cool of you to do, but I want the big thing. I want to be done with this. I want to be all over. I want to be out of prison. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right? God answers every prayer of ours the same way we would answer it if we knew what he knew. And so don't miss these small, miraculous things that God is doing to lead us where he wants us. You will miss so much of the goodness of God with that kind of thinking. You will miss so much of the goodness of God if you're only focused on these huge steps and you're like, if I'm not free of this completely, then God hasn't done anything. Or if it's not completely out of my life, then God hasn't started. Or if it's not completely in my rearview mirror, then God isn't working on my behalf. That's not true. And it's what we see in this story. You know what a gift God with us is? It is better for Paul to be in prison with God by his side than out of prison and God is nowhere to be found. And the same is true for us. It's better to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil, like David said, because he is with me than walking in comfort without him. It is way better for God to be with you in your hardship, doing little miracle after little miracle to remind you that he is with you than it would be for him to remove your difficulty altogether and then you forget you even needed him in the first place. And I do need to point out that the presence of God with you was an expensive gift. This moment where God shows up in the prison cell, that, that wasn't always possible. Not because God was limited somehow. God wasn't like, I don't know how to get down there. Give me directions. Where's Google Maps when you need it, right? No. The Bible tells us that our sin has separated us from God, right? So we chose. God was like, hey, go this way. We're like, nah, we got a better way. And that choosing are turning our backs on God that separated us from God. God cannot dwell with evil. So there's this huge thing between us, right? The picture in the Bible was a veil. And when you hear veil, you think of like the thing the bride wears. No, this was like a huge curtain, huge thick one, right? And it separated God from man. And then what happened as Jesus dies on the cross is that veil is torn from top to bottom, right? And what happens at the end of it as Jesus takes that punishment of our sin upon himself and that uh, accusation against us, that legal like conviction against us is wiped away, then now we can be together once again. He can be with us. That's why this coming Good Friday is so important to Christians. right? So that God can stand with you in your prison cell and say, take courage. I'm with you. Like, that is an incredible gift. And not only incredible, but expensive, because it costs him his life. We're leading up to Easter Sunday, which is next Sunday, and the joy of the resurrection on that Sunday morning 
was preceded by this incredible price that was paid on the cross. And so that's what we're going to do uh, with our next 10 minutes or so, is we're going to take some time to remember what Jesus did on the cross. That incredible price that was paid, that incredible gift that was given, that promise that he could now be with us. And so uh, we have communion cups up here in the front. We have a table in the back. Uh, I'm going to give you the go ahead in just a minute. Not right yet. Um, we're going to sing some, sing some songs, but I want to point out why we do this. What happened was the night before Jesus died on the cross is he sat around a table with his disciples and he held up a cup and a piece of bread and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. So we choose right now to remember the incredible price that was paid on our behalf that God might now be with us. Right? So we in thankfulness are going to take the cup and the bread and we're going to remember this is an incredible gift and it costs you an incredible price. And yeah, maybe it didn't take all my burdens away immediately. Maybe I'm still in prison at the end of it. But because of this cup and this bread, you could be with me in the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. Like that's a gift, guys. That's an incredible gift. I will point out that this is something we do to remember Jesus. So if you're not a believer in Jesus or a follower of Jesus, you don't have to do this. We're not a big fan of people doing things they don't understand or don't believe in. So nobody's going to look at you weird if you stay in your seat the whole time. It's not a big deal. But if you are a follower of Jesus, like this is the time that we've set aside to remember this incredible price that was paid. Um, and we're going to spend this week kind of leading up to Easter just in that mindset. Like, wow, God, you paid this price for me. The results of it are you get to be with me. And the next Sunday, we're going to celebrate uh, that he conquered sin and death by raising from the dead. Amen? So let's go ahead and pray.